host, Luke Tim. And a very, very cool podcast for you guys today. I had two people in the room with me. One of them is my neighbor. Uh, Moved back, uh, moved into the house next door to me, I want to say in November, so back several months. Um, But really, this spring, uh, we have have become very good friends very quickly. A lot of that is because we're uh, forced to be at home and around each other (laughs) because can't go anywhere else because of this lousy pandemic we have going on. So we've gotten to know each other pretty well. And uh, he's just got a great story, great perspective on things. And he and his cousin, both um, black men who came out here to start a church, and uh, both are are sons of pastors. And it's just a cool conversation about race relations uh, from their perspective. Uh, Just want to keep getting voices and thoughts in front of you guys or as many people as possible on this issue because it's important. So there's that. So, without further ado, uh, here is Daniel and Cam on All the Things. Introduce ourselves for people listening at home. I'm uh, Daniel Scott. Uh, Cameron Scott, pastor at Cityscape. Cityscape. Tell me about Cityscape. Uh, Cityscape Church is a church that in July will be um, five years old. Started it July 12, 2015. And um, yeah, we're, we're located in Des Moines and we're just a church that uh, just loves the Lord and wants to change the city. So tell me about, start, you started the church though. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear about that process of starting a church. Um, it is unlike anything else. I can be honest with you. Like uh, I always tell people, I mean, my wife and I, the, the dream was given to us. But mm-hmm. as far as starting the church, we had a group of people that, was, that were with us that helped start the church. Um, when we launched publicly, we had been meeting previous for about nine months before mm-hmm. we launched. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of meetings on Tuesday nights at seven o'clock at Java Joe's right. coffee shop downtown. So that, um, amongst other places. Yeah, amongst other places. We yeah. rotated quite a bit. We did. We were very creative. With the purpose though. Yeah. With to, the purpose, yeah. That's to true. try to you know go around the city and know what, what you're getting into. Right. Exactly. But yeah, starting the church. Um it's, it's unlike anything I've ever done before. And you're coming from Southern California. Mm-hmm. I, I came from, so I was coming from Arizona. I had lived here already. Okay. I went to Simpson College. Okay. Um, graduated <clears throat> from there in so 12. we were both originally from we were California. Both, but, but yeah. And then okay. you went to college out here. Yep. Then went back home to Arizona for a little bit. No, I stayed here after I graduated college. So you've been here, what, 10 years? For 12. I've been here 10. You've been okay. here 12? Yeah. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> so um, why start a church? Because the Lord said so. <laughs> Tell me a, more. This is a funny story with with, with Sarah too. Uh, but go ahead. I mean, so my, my dad's a pastor. He started a church. Um, both our dads are pastors. My dad started a church in California, so I grew up around church planting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of woven into my DNA, if you will. Experience. Um, having the experience, be all the behind the scenes stuff. So I was familiar with that process and what that looked like. Um, for me, it was in college when I started Bible studies. It was Simpson College. At right? Simpson College, yeah. It was like I started four Bible studies in my dorm at different times, and they just blew up. And so I just really became passionate about teaching the Bible. 
um, explaining things to people who just were who were wanting to know but never had an opportunity to learn those things. And so from there, um, graduated college, took a job out of college as a youth pastor in Altoona at a Methodist church, was there for about two and a half years. From there, started Cityscape in 2015. So uh, ministry was something I... It, only thing I really was passionate about. I, I didn't want to settle anywhere. I didn't want to go work at Principal or Wells Fargo. Um, I wanted to do ministry. And so... From how... Like, at what age did you know? Like, this is definitely what I want to do. I would say in college, I knew. Yeah. I, I would say in college, I knew I wanted to start a church. I didn't know when. Um, and I just really stopped thinking about it for a long period of time. I didn't start thinking about church planning until probably my second year of being a youth pastor, where I was coming into a church where there was not a youth ministry established. And so it was that process of building something up um, and getting these youth to show up. And I love that process. I just have an entrepreneurial type spirit. I love kind of building um, from nothing. And so from there, I just really was intrigued by it. Uh, and then about a half a year later, um, my pastor and I had had conversations. He knew going in when I interviewed for the job that I wanted to start a church. Um, and we weren't sure if it was going to be through the Methodist process or not. Um but that whole system became messy with what they're going through there. So God took me down a different route. And uh, he was he did everything he could to try to equip me and help me um, to send me off well. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, my, my story is a little bit different. I didn't know I wanted really to be a pastor until uh-huh. I almost was one. Uh-huh. Oh. So <laughs> seminary and everything. I was My, my like long-term plan was... Um, I, similar, actually, I love teaching the Bible. Mm-hmm. I love to teach. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of looking, my, so all my whole family are all teachers. My dad's a principal of a Lutheran grade school, yeah. uh, was forever. Mom is a teacher, um, sister's a teacher, cousins, uncles, were all Lutheran school teachers. So yeah. that was kind of default, yeah. the direction I was going. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then in college, I fell in love with the Bible. Mm. And it sounds weird to say, but like, I, I'd read the Bible plenty. Yep. And I had, you know, I, I knew it. But then, like, falling in love with it in college, going to, to Bible studies, leading Bible studies, I was like, I'm just going to study this more. And pretty soon, it was it was pretty clear that I was taking all pre-seminary classes, the, mm-hmm. the classes to get into the sem. And so then I was like, all right, I'm going to go to the seminary, get a Master's of Divinity, and be, like, a pastor. Yeah. But not really, because yeah. I, I wanted to teach in high school. So yeah. I wanted to go back to high school, be a um, football wrestling coach, teach in high school, mm-hmm. teach uh, religion classes and stuff like that. But then we have this thing in seminary, the, the third year of seminary is called Vicarage, where you go out and you play pastor for a year. Um, and you have to do it whether you're going to be a pastor or not. Mm. So I went out in Vicarage and spent a year doing it and was like, this is this is what I want. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, it's, yeah. It's, I'm teaching. Yeah. And, you know, that's awesome. This yeah. is what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's not in a classroom setting, which is actually, I think, better. Yeah. So. I came back and I was like, I think I'm going to be a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, you well, you're in a seminary. It's yeah. probably a good thing to decide. Where'd you go do your year of Vicar? <clears throat> I was in Denver. Really? Loved it out there. Oh, wow. I love Denver. It is the best. Yeah. And did you spend time in St. Louis too? St. Louis is where the seminary is. Oh. Yeah. So two years, uh, my first two years in St. Louis, then they ship you out somewhere. It could be anywhere in, in the United States or yeah. even some guys go overseas spend a year, and then you come back to St. Louis for one more year. Wow. So, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Now, at, at Simpson, didn't some of your fire come from going at it with your professors? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was a liberal arts school. So, I mean, yeah. you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, in as much as they claim Methodism and Wesleyan theology, you know, the Bible was a subjective 
more you know, history book. Yeah, I mean, it just it was a it was an opportunity to kind of play around with subjective thoughts mm-hmm. and try to manipulate scripture to kind of get what you want. So it was um, a Plato of theology, if you will. Like it just was messed around with it. And yeah, going to that school, it was interesting because I had a professor. I had three professors that taught uh, theology there. Um, one was con- considered herself a mystic. Um, so she was into mysticism in that whole realm. Um, one was uh, a massive Karl Barth fan. Um, also interesting. But, and then we had another one. academic, yeah. Yeah. Another one was um, a former Methodist pastor um, who had lost her license for human sexuality reasons. And so um, she was also, in, you know, a feminist and took interesting classes with all three. And <laughs> I was the only guy who, I mean, you, you call it conservative theology, I guess, is what they would classify it as if you ask them. I just think it's right theology. Um, or at least right theology heading in the right direction, I would say. Right. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a process, man, because I, I really, I mean, apologetics is where, you know, you talk about Ravi Zacharias and the legacy he's left. Yes. He was, he was huge for me in college. He was such a, a vital and part Sarah, of my learning. And your wife, right? Sarah, yeah, Sarah pushed me to in, um, to learn more. So it was good. I learned a lot about what I didn't believe, uh-huh. and learned a lot <laughs> more about the wacky theology that's out, out there. there. It's wild. It's, it is. It's wild. It absolutely is. And like you said, it's a lot of it is um, trying to fit um, something ancient and and not all that malleable into our you know worldview today mm-hmm. to try and make to, to confirm me right you know so right. I feel better about me rather right. than uh, trying to understand how I how I need to be shaped and molded into something else right exactly because <laughs> that's uncomfortable yes exactly <laughs> if you can confirm everything I already think about myself and believe then I don't have to change it's right. a lot easier right so uh, tell me a little bit about the church um, what's what's its specific niche. We're, so we're an urban church. We're, we're a church that's in the city. We've, already been, we've been very adamant about being in the city. I think the vision for our church has been to part, to change a culture for the glory of God. So that, for us, it's um, finding ways to engage the neighborhood, the block, in order to bring about gospel renewal, gospel restoration to the family unit, mainly. And that's developed over time. When we first started the church, that wasn't really our focus. We were, I would say, we, we wanted to change the city. How we tactically went about that or strategically went about that is different than where we are today. I think you grow up and you mature mm-hmm. and you kind of get a broader understanding of what the purpose of the church is. Um, but yeah, our niche really is just being a multi-ethnic church that um, that is trying to stay ahead of culture because Des Moines is changing so quickly. So my thing has always been, I don't want our church to be playing catch up with mm-hmm. culture. I always want our church to be at least five or 10 steps ahead of culture. So trying to be anticipatory as far as where we think the culture is going and then placing ourselves there, developing a culture where it makes sense, maybe not right now, but it will make sense five years from now. Right. Um, just because Des Moines, the demographic of and culture of Des Moines is changing so quickly. What, how, is, how is Des Moines changing? Uh, gee, I mean, obviously, I mean, you've probably seen a lot of those articles have come out. Um, Des Moines being the number one place for young professionals to come. Been cost of living's low. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's that it's a hot spot for people coming out of college, people who want um, Tech, decent man. education for their kids, safety, um, and want to be able to buy a house without you know spending an arm and a leg. Mm-hmm. Um, so Des Moines has that's shifted. But I also think that um, what you're seeing in Des Moines, which is interesting, is this whole idea of urban is changing. So, you know, typically we define urban as inner city in the past. And within the inner city, you saw large African-American 
communities or people of color. But you've seen some of those uh, those projections that the those who are considered minorities today will be considered the majority, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and those who are considered my majorities today, the majority will become the minority by twenty forty or something like that. Yeah. So this idea of urban's changing because with Iowa being filled with so many rural co- communities, less millennials are living in a rural context because of the skills gap, right? So they're not wanting to work the farm. They're not wanting right. to, they're going to school and they're getting a business degree or the finance degree or something like that. And they're wanting to be able to exercise that knowledge, uh, make a career out of it. So they're getting jobs in principle. They're getting jobs at Wells Fargo, things like that. Or Facebook. Who's playing Face, Facebook. And you have, you have Amazon and all that kind of stuff too. And so they're moving into an urban context. And so urban now is defined not as inner city, but as density plus diversity. Um, Density plus diversity. Yeah. So it's this interesting dynamic. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Of, oh, so that's what Des Moines is becoming because of the, Mm -hmm. because of that skills gap, less millennials living in the rural context. um, You know, Des Moines is, is really kind of the epitome of that reality um, being true. So we try to. Yeah. I was, I've told Daniel before when we were considering the call here. So the, the way our system works is, is, um, kind of specific. So a church, any church can call me to be their pastor anytime. No. And uh, sometimes it's out of the blue. Like I just get a phone call. Hey, we decided to call you. We're a church in Tennessee or something like that. Sometimes they do an interview process. Yeah. And um, when they when they extended this call to me, I got it kind of out of the blue. And um, they said Clive, Iowa. And I was like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I Googled it and I went, Oh, you mean Des Moines? Yeah. <laughs> you should definitely say, say Des Moines. Because right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I haven't, if it's not Des Moines or like Dubuque or something like that, yeah. I'm like it is a town of 80 people yeah, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So, and then the, my next concern. So they flew us out, my wife and I, and uh, my next big concern was I wanted to be in a place of diversity. I was I was really concerned. So Joni and I were talking. I said I'm I don't want my kids to grow up. And, and have the same – I had a very um, homogenous upbringing. I yeah. mean I met my first black person in high school probably for sure and, and that was it. Mm-hmm. That's 15 years in, huh? Yeah. That's, yeah that's and he a, was – there was one. That's yeah. a lot of stuff to learn before you're introduced to something new. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was pleased. We got here. We're just walking around Jordan Creek Mall and there's – you know uh, – a lot of people from India, from Asia, uh, and it was, I was like, man, this is going to yeah. be okay. Yeah. This is going to be okay. Yeah. So it's, it's more diverse than I thought it was. Yeah. Um, what, what is the, um, what is Des Moines like in terms of race relations? You lived in other places yeah. as well. Um, I, I always tell people, I think there's more curiosity than anything. I think coming, coming here, uh, like you said, for me coming into college, so a little bit later on in, in life, I was the first black person a lot of people met, right? That's crazy. And so they would College. bring me home. Yeah, which is wild. Um, <laughs> Wait, they would bring you home? Yeah, they would say, hey, they would, they would say, hey yeah, you want a home-cooked meal? This is a scary story. Right? And I mean, you know, not <laughs> like thinking about Showing anything. you off? Like, uh, look, mom, That was part of the, uh, part of the uh, allure. Um, but, you know, they say, hey, you want to come home from a home-cooked meal? I'm like, absolutely. I'm tired of this cafeteria food. Let's go. And they would, you know, I would ask the question because I'm just that way. Am I the first black person to kind of walk inside this house? They kind of laugh. Yeah, you are. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people here are just curious about things. I think sometimes that curiosity can 
come across as prejudice. Yeah. Um, but I just think it's a, a I don't want to say a childlike ignorance, if you will. No, like, it really they, is. Just, they don't know. So I, after my sermon on Sunday, we do communion here. So you can worship online and mm-hmm. then come here, get communion. And I had a, several people where, where what I was saying in the sermon was um, – Let's start having conversations with. Let's start being curious and talking to, just to listen mm-hmm. and to hear. And I had several people be like, I, I got nothing. I, I got nobody to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I get it. Yeah. So we're going to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going right. to take some time. Um, you don't probably, you here. Yeah, <laughs> right. You probably don't want to just run up to black people <laughs> yeah, in the street right. and be like, hey, hey, how do you feel? <laughs> Right. That's so happened, though. That question of, of how are race relations in Des Moines, is that any different than the what's the like, what's the how is immigration viewed here? So it's that's a good question. We do have a lot of people come through um, through the area from Mexico to you know meatpacking plants and, and stuff like that. So we get a lot of so coming through. Movement. Yes. But so we see race relations as a different conversation than immigration. The reason why I'm bringing them up is because I draw a similarity between the two in that they are just topics and they're nothing that really has to be dealt with. So coming from Southern California, when every four years we talk about politics, right? (laughs) So immigration is always on that that list. Well, out there it actually matters because you're bordered to Mexico. Mm Mm-hmm. Out here, talking about immigration, it's a just a click, just a news channel didn't turn it because it yeah. re- you really don't have to pay attention to that. Maybe I'm speaking from ignorance, but I do know that we do have a refugee population in Des Moines mm-hmm. that I know his mm-hmm. wife works in those schools and she deals with them. But outside of that, I don't see, I know the majority out here is the majority. So I tie that to race relations. What? Is it really something that, like he said, it's just curiosity? It's curiosity. It's been curiosity for a long time. Right. Why? Because it doesn't have to be anything more than that. Right. You don't have to <laughs> step outside of curiosity into actually now caring. Yeah. You know, curiosity. I'm curious about the grass. I'm curious about the weather. But that, it fades. Yes, it and does. so how are race relations in Des Moines? I think it's, it's, a, it's as fleeting as the immigration conversation is. Anywhere that's not a coastal area that you actually have to border. Yep, I agree. Like you said, immigrate, immigrants, they come through, but we don't expect them to stay. Therefore, we don't treat them like they're staying. And it's and it's work. Um, race relations is work. And you, people tend to not work hard at something if it doesn't seem like it is a big issue. Mm-hmm. And it, it has no value if it's not yeah. worth it. Right. But since we know you're not staying, since we know this is not where you guys are, mm-hmm. Be, be 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 it not black, be it anything. Yeah. Since we know this is not where you are, I wonder now how now how would you answer that? How are race relations? Because it, it, I, I I've been told, hey, Dan, you need to take your kids to this school. You need to put your kids in this area because this is where we are. Yeah. This is where we are. This this is where we cluster. Because everything around us isn't ours anyway. So this this is this is ours. If you want your kids to get the true experience and not grow up in Waukee and be surrounded by all these white folks and think they up it against stuff, is it you need to bring them here? <laughs> well, what, I can attack that in so many ways. But what is it telling me? It tells me that the race relations, immigration. If I could tie those two together, it really it's it's just it's a topic. It's fleeting. Yeah. It's and, and and those who are not the majority, they hold to what's their own. 
I think there's a real sense also that um, we're in Des Moines and race relations are a problem in those other cities, but not here. From Let's from see. our perspective, <laughs> from the suburbs' perspective, we see that a lot. Cause we don't, oh, okay, I see what you said. I see what you said. Yeah, we don't have a lot of um, we don't have a lot of shootings at all. We don't have you know mm-hmm. a lot of um, police shootings ever. I, mean, I think there's been two or three since I've lived here. Yeah. So it's it's not like it's been a real big issue. Mm-hmm. So it just feels like it's something else that's over there. Right. And um, I'm trying to bring out some of that perspective for people to say, no, there's. Work to be done in Des Moines. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, yeah. so what is what is the, your experience in Des Moines as far as um, being a, a person of color in Des Moines? Is it comparative to other cities you've lived? Um, I would say, I mean, it. my experience in Des Moines has been good. If I didn't like Des Moines, I would be here. I mean, I, I think part of how I am, I'm just, if I don't like it, I'm out. Um, my experience has been positive for the most part. Uh, I've had my occasional issues with some things. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's ra- racist issues, but I just make more prejudice. Um, and so, and I, and, and me having the grace that I have, I get that to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really do get that. I try to empathize with that reality for some people. But for the most part, my experience has been good. People have been kind to me. Um, I was in a Methodist church that was predominantly white. Some of the nicest people I've met were there. This is a church that uh, was allowed me to come in at 21 years old, uh, allowed me to provide for my family, allowed me to gain a ministry experience I needed, and then sent me off with a massive check to plant a church. So uh, that experience has been good. College was good. Um, all my professors, except for a few, were white. Um, had good relationships with most of them for the most part. None of my theology professors, because they <laughs> my, my pushback, but um, my lack of submissiveness, submissiveness to their ways of thinking. But it was it was a good experience. I mean, it was. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. And you know, the crazy thing is coming out here. I think part of it for me. I think this might be different for other people. Was I was coming out of a situation where in high school there was a lot of change. There was a lot going on, and so I was just like done. And I hated Arizona. We had lived in Arizona for about a year and a half before I moved. It was or all two Southern years. California before I Hated Arizona. Absolutely hated it. So I was willing to go anywhere. This is why I was willing to come here. And one of the things my dad told me to do was like, this is an opportunity to recreate yourself. Because he knew in high school, you know, I hated it. I just was, I wasn't, I didn't have any friends. I would play basketball, went to school, played basketball, went to school. I was like, well, that's all I did. And it was a little bit of depression going on with me um, just because of life circumstances. And so, he was like, hey, this is an opportunity for you to recreate yourself. So I, I, I took advantage of that coming out here. Mm-hmm. I wanted to come out here and I wanted to create a new life and I wanted to be a true expression of who I was. And so that, I think, me pursuing that made me have a, allowed me to have a good experience. Um, I loved college. I really did. I made a lot of good friends in college. Enjoyed the four years. Um, post. So I haven't, Yeah. you know, I, I don't have the same narrative as, as some other people do. Um, and I think it's just the grace of God, but you know, I think what you said earlier about the so there's this difference between the just the natural bias that we have, the the natural prejudice that mm-hmm. we have, and racism. I mean, that is such yeah. a big, heavy word. It is, and I'm trying really hard with because I'm trying to bring these things up in my in in messages on Sunday in the church without calling all of my members a bunch of racists. <laughs> you know, yeah. but uh, so the example I gave was I have this natural bias that is. Um, Cops are good. Uh-huh. That is 
and I, why is that? Well, my best friend's a cop. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I've had several friends who are cops. I've never had a friend who's a, a terrible cop. They're mm-hmm. all good cops. Mm-hmm. But part of that is I wouldn't be friends with a terrible person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then him also be a cop. It doesn't right. matter to me. Like, I'm not going to be uh, friends with a guy like Derek Chauvin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to like that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> whether he's a cop or not. Right. So that, um, and one of my, here's, here's when I knew, like the first time I really recognized somebody grew up differently than me. Mm-hmm. I was a pastor in Michigan and I had, uh, my staff with me, we we're going on a staff retreat. So in this rented minivan, we're driving in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And my principal is, um, mixed race, but he's, he's darker skinned from kind of the Detroit area. Mm-hmm. So it's late at night, we're driving, kind of lost, and the edge of this town has this big sign on it, and, and it's got um, a map of the, it's kind of a resort town, like here's all the houses and the streets and stuff, and I go, oh, you know, that, let's pull in and kind of pull it off into the grass a little bit to see on the map where we are and where we need to be. And then out of the blue, a bunch of cops pull up, lights going, and they were they were actually looking for somebody else, so that, mm. that's like a whole weird side story. But I, I, they're all coming out, walking towards the van real slowly. And I go, oh, good. Cops are here. They could probably uh, help us, whatever. And <laughs> I look over, and in the passenger seat, my principal slash friend has his hands on the dashboard. Yeah. And he looks at me and goes, only a white guy says, oh, good. <laughs> the cops are here. <laughs> oh, man. And I was like, yeah. And, it, yeah. and then I, I was now watching. <clears throat> Cop walks up, and he looks past me to the passenger seat and he's got his hand on his gun. Yeah. And he goes, you okay? Oh. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, this is my friend, Mike, and we're good. Like, we're here on a staff retreat and he's like, okay. Yeah. But there was just that second of, yeah. you okay? Yeah. Yeah. Went, that This man has experienced life very, very differently, differently. <laughs> than yeah. I have. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, you said your natural bias was that cops were good, right? <laughs> Did you see that the – I saw last week. I haven't looked at it for myself, but I just saw it on Instagram where everybody gets their information. <laughs> Obviously. That Cops, the show, Cops, was finally canceled. Yes. Okay, so growing up, I didn't. I wouldn't say Cops – I didn't like Cops, but I sure didn't trust them because when you watch the show, bad boys, what you mm-hmm. going, what you going, right? All I saw was – the and, and call this a flaw in their marketing. All I saw was violence. It's what sells. That's all, all I saw. And then, so what do you have? Little boys growing up saying, oh, I want to be a cop. Bam, 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 with their little guns and mm-hmm. carrying around handcuffs. Get on the ground. Get on the ground. I didn't like them. Yeah. I didn't like cops. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's not like I had this anger towards them, but I did not trust that they were trying to do the community good. Because all I saw was that they are constantly entangled with what's bad. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that viral video that's going around right now of this 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 cop? She's a white lady. She's got to be in her maybe late twenties, early thirties, and she comes up to this girl, and the girl just starts crying, just immediately starts crying, mm-hmm. and the cop starts mm-hmm. crying. You seen it? Yep. It's a black girl, and and, and the cop, the, the lady, she starts crying too because she knows that this girl's in fear for her life. Yeah. And she says, "I'm sorry that you feel this way, but we're not all bad. Yeah. We're not all bad." Take me, my, that, my experience, I'm 31 years old now, so let's just say I watch cops always maybe like 10, 12. Maybe that's, that, 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 that's where it was able to implant my perception, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but let's take this little girl who had to be no more than 7 or 8. That, that perception is still there. Mm-hmm. It's still there. Um, 
I did not believe cops were good. Now, my wife now works with the police department. And so that's been a challenge to me because it's like it's challenging some of my biases. It's like, hold on. Well, they're not all bad. And I see there's a flaw in some of their training lack yeah. or lack thereof. But these are not inherently bad people. They're not inherently bad. That's some of them are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and there is this, you know, a, a systemic part to all of this that is um, it doesn't mean that that a bunch of white people sat down and were like, let's make up some rules and <laughs> see how we can. But just the way that the mm-hmm. things are set up mm-hmm. has a certain um, racial bias and prejudice to it. Well, did the Democrat Party not start the KKK and did, did there was policing? Did not did that not come out of the KKK? I don't know my history well enough to tell you. I, I know that <clears throat> that party was more involved in the KKK at it, some point that I've heard several times. <clears throat> I turned off my phone, <laughs> so I can't look it up. No, but I think you're right. These are things yeah. that you know I've heard, I've heard for a while, and so yeah, systemic, yeah, systemic, a big problem with that. And I saw this thing that said, "You think defunding the police is a radical idea until you realize that they've been defunding education for the last fifty years." <laughs> right. Mm. So, right. The, so people want to get all enraged about defunding police. Stop that. Well, it's it's a it, it doesn't sound right. So I, I just talked to my other pastor buddy about this on a podcast. Um, it sounds like what we're saying is defund the police. Sounds like let's have anarchy. Nobody enforcing rules yeah. and stopping yeah, you're crime. right. It does sound bad. That's not what it is. Right. But so here's here's the distinction that I've started to draw is um, police in our neighborhood serve the people in our neighborhood, and then in different neighborhoods they police. So they serve one group uh, and police another group. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> Who was it? It, it was, I'm trying to think of uh, New York. Um, was it Stop and Frisk? Yes. Who, who was the one who was running? Um, uh, was it Giuliani started that? Uh, Bloomberg. Oh, Bloomberg. Yeah, my Bloomberg, yeah. And he's, remember he's on tape saying, we, uh, <clears throat> we put all the police in all the urban areas because that's where all the crime is. And so... That goes a lot along with what you're saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. In certain areas, they police because they think that's where it all is because all the criminals yeah. look like one person. But in other areas, they're driving by waving at kids saying, hey, honk, honk, how you doing? Just driving by, enjoying their day. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very, very, two, two very different communities. And you know, like I said, it's, it's I, I don't know all the reasons. I'm not smart to say this is this is why. Um, urban areas have more people of color in them and why um, the suburbs are more white, but it's it's this weird reality. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, part, part of the historical reality of that is, um, you know, you're able to study black history in America. Redlining. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about redlining and, and things like that. But you talk about, you know, post-emancipation, right? You have these freedmen who... Who are making attempts to just make a living, right? So you have the Emancipation Proclamation signed, they're freed, and now what they're trying to do is they're just trying to live. And so what they're attempting to do is build their own communities, right? Tulsa. Um, Oklahoma. Yep. And um, and the, the black church at this time is really heading a lot of that up, right? So you have, you know, even it's an interesting thing, you look at black church history, 
you have the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church who had the most impact on slaves, right? You had John Wesley going in and doing his thing and trying to get, you know, trying to free black slaves and really putting his life in a position where he could, he was being threatened for the sake of black people. So he was practicing his theology. Baptists were doing the same thing. And so you have um, coming up these black preachers who are given opportunities to preach in front of both white and black folks. And after the Emancipation Proclamation is signed, you have these black ministers, these reverends, now saying, okay, we have to take initiative to build our own community because we can't rely on the white man to to do what we have to do. They're just trying to tear us down. And so I sent this to you a few days ago, but when you look at some of they have these mutual aid societies that were started, right? Uh And what the purpose of these were was it was it was an opportunity for the black community to support a focal point, uh, two focus points. One, the widowed woman, mm-hmm. and the the the, um, the orphan child, mm-hmm. right? And it was a way of helping them live and get on their feet. And from there, you got the you had the, the start of these black fraternities. And so uh, you have uh, Reverend Washington Brown, who says, "Okay, let's let's buy some land and start building banks and building grocery stores, right?" And what happens? They get burned down. Burn them down to the ground. Burn them down. And so they're just trying to they're just trying to live free. These people are just trying to live free. These black freed former slaves are just trying to live freely. And as they become successful, everything's taken away from them. And so you have now in 2020, you have this urban context was called considered the inner city, and you have these ghettos. Because these were where this is where they're basically bust. <laughs> They were they were put into these little places to keep away from the white communities, hmm. the white suburban communities. They did not want obviously black people in their community. They want they said you're gonna this is where you're gonna be, and then you get situations why like the war on drugs, mm-hmm. right? How is it that drugs are so prevalent in the black community? Because if you can put them all in a little area and then put drugs in there, it's gonna affect the whole population of people, right? Um, and so you have this issue with. Um, gangs and violence and um, drugs and things like that, fatherlessness, because it's, it's been perpetuated by politicians who leverage policies to really say, how can we, how can we get the upper hand? And I think when you talk about racism, you know, I, I hate when I think racism now is thrown around way too loosely. I think anytime a white guy does something against a black guy. Uh, is considered racist. Unfairly. I, and, yeah. I, and I think even the situation in Minneapolis, I mean, to be completely honest with you, my, my, my first initial thought wasn't, oh, this is a racist act. This is an act of injustice, without a doubt. But I, I can understand also the optic of that looking like that's a racist situation but because that was a true. picture of mm. the African-American history uh. In this country. Yes. The white guy having his knee in a black man's neck. Ow. Taking life away from him. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I can see how people could rush to that. But I think in your rational thinking, I think it's unfair to say, hey, this is a racist situation. Um, but nonetheless, um, I think racism is thrown around too loosely. And I think I read this book uh, by Ibram Kennedy or something. I can't remember his name. I can't pronounce his name. But it's called Stamp from the Beginning. And how he defines racism. He says racism isn't about hate. He says racism is about self-interest. Hmm. And he argues that it's really difficult to hate someone you don't know. Hmm. Oh, In some okay. ways, hate requires some form of relationship. Yeah. Some knowledge. I agree. Some yeah, knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, but you don't have to know anyone to manipulate someone or take advantage of someone because of the color of their skin. 
So he says, when you think about the transatlantic slave movement, you know, these colonists weren't, they were looking at these Africans saying, oh, we hate them. They just saw an opportunity to take advantage of people for economic gain. Mm-hmm. It's about self-interest. And so um, yeah. I thought that's an interesting perspective on racism. When we talk about. Yeah. So when I, when I saw that video, um, my first thought was <clears throat> not, not racism, but um, that cop, and I've, and I've said this before, so people are going to be annoyed, but it's, it was him versus them. He was, there was this other, and the biggest other group were the bystanders. Yeah. So when the bystanders were like, hey, you're killing him, get off of him, that's, it was more about, I think, the bystanders. Mm-hmm. And then I just saw a look in his eyes like, yeah, now I'm not gonna, because you people, because mm-hmm. you people say I should get off his neck, now I'm not gonna. Mm-hmm. So it was more, regardless of the color of their skin, it was that sort of urban mindset of, of these people and I'm a police officer and my yeah. job is to put these people in their place yeah. and I'm going to stay right here on this guy's neck so they learn and I, I think in my honest opinion it's more of a power trip that kept him on that man's neck than the fact that he was black in my in my opinion could it have been sure I don't know but I do think that they're within policing yeah. that there's been this freedom to exercise an, an extra amount of power or an unnecessary amount of power which takes away from protecting because it's, it's, you know, it's one thing for me to protect my wife and use my strength to protect. It's another thing for me to abuse my wife and use my strength to abuse. Mm-hmm. Right. We're, we have strength, but it's how we exercise that strength. And I think that because of sin, because of brokenness and because of the pride of life, you have these men who are now put in positions to police and well, they have contracts to kill. And and there's 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 systemic things within that that make it permissible to function that way, but you know it, it make I mean to me it's it's not shocking to see someone abuse their power, right? Yeah, right. We all do. We all do to some extent, and so when I see that taking place, what I see is a man who wanted to exercise what he thought was his right to exercise his power over someone. Um, which resulted in someone's death. But we talk about police reform. Um, we talk about making changes and things like that. You know, you can't, I always say this, you can't legislate righteousness. You can't legislate justice. So it's like we can pass bills and laws and policy and all that, but what part of that doesn't sound like give up, though? Well, it's not. not, not and do we do we push for that? We we still push for legislation. Don't right. get me wrong. <clears throat> but we're not relying on legislation to make the ultimate change. Yeah. Because I, I do think that I think I think about someone like a Nehemiah or someone like a Daniel or someone like a a Joseph who were in positions of power because they had relationships with kings and with right. And these men exercised their spiritual convictions to make sure that you know things were functioning in the right way and they had influence. Over that leadership, but at the same time, I think they also had a spiritual understanding of the ultimate responsibility. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, I was having this conversation the other day. Yeah, we got to push for legislation and we got to push for good policy. And we need more Christian mayors and Christian governors and Bible believing, you know, people in within those politics, those realms of politics. But ultimately, those are those are should function as a means to an end. So I, I was 
doing just a lot of reading uh, last couple of weeks. I want to want to get my sermons and the the voice of the church right. So I've been just digging into the history of like um, civil rights and um, the white church. There was this really interesting conversation going on. A lot of the white evangelicals from the north were opposed to the Civil Rights Act, and it wasn't because they didn't believe. Well, on paper, what, I, what I'm reading says it's not because they didn't believe the um, precepts of it were correct, but kind of what you were saying is you can't legislate that. Uh-huh. You can't just write a law and now people are not just make it illegal to be racist and then now it's over, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> they were they were having that conversation yeah. with Martin Luther King Jr. and and his position was you're right the laws won't change the hearts of men um, and this is just a paraphrase but it, uh, something along the lines of but the laws will will at, at least give us equity in how yeah. we're treated and dignity absolutely so there yeah I mean it's it's a very inequitable and it's um, a real lack of dignity to say you have to use this water fountain mm. and not this water fountain. So we changed that law, and now th- that's not a thing anymore, but it doesn't mean that we still don't have racist people out there. Mm-hmm. Hearts, hearts are still the way they are. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I have a question, just, mm-hmm. do you think that because it's become more difficult for people to express openly the racism, that in some ways you have this pent-up anger towards a group of people, particular group of people that expresses itself in a different manner than it did 50, 60 years ago. So it didn't go away. It's just expressed differently. Yeah. And maybe even worse. And worse. And I, and I think that's kind of like, do you think it's it's expressed? Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I'll go first. Yeah. I saw it's, it's psychological warfare to see say now you're, we're an equal opportunity employer. Mm-hmm. So now you've gone through 400 years of slavery, 50 plus. Now, an additional 50 where you tried to build something, then we tore that down. Mm-hmm. And now we have, um, uh, what is it? What is it? Where, what, what's the term I'm looking for where you have to hire a certain amount of people? Um, affirmative action. Uh, yeah, affirmative action. And now it's psychological warfare to say, now you're an equal uh, opportunity um, uh, employer. So now if two people have the exact same resume, one's black, one's white, you expect somebody not to exercise, kind of like what you were saying. Let's just legally make it uh, impossible to, like, just make it against the law to be racist. Mm-hmm. That does not take away their bias. Now, now they can express it a different way. They say, okay, well, now I have to consider you over here, non-white person, and I have well, I I put you let you both come all the way to the to the finish line, and then say, "Oh, sorry, you weren't good enough." And let somebody else come. They just express mm-hmm. it in a different mm-hmm. way. So, yes, I, I I I do think there's a lot of pent up, but I think unfairly, I see you ready to go. You ready to burst? <laughs> I think unfairly though, I might get in the woods here. <laughs> Too much of it, not that. None of it is attributed to, but too much of it is attributed to Trump. Right? I don't think that he is not to blame for some of it coming out, but I think too much of it is attributed to him. They were just waiting on somebody because eight years of Obama was way too much. <laughs> they were waiting on, oh, where's that guy? Where's that guy? Where's that guy? It could have been Bernie, our guy. Okay. But anyway, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's um, sort of that, that pent-up 
angst or, or race relations from the white perspective is um, this sense of, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a fear of being called a racist. Uh, so <clears throat> I'm going to do a joke for you guys. <clears throat> it's a racist joke. Okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> no, I, so I have this dream of um, doing like a little bit of stand-up. I, I, I love stand-up comedy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like in our profession, stand-up is the closest thing yeah. to what we do because yep. you are in front of a group of people. Yep. You want to try and do a group <laughs> thing. You want them to correlation. <laughs> yeah, and you want them to think with you. So you, you're, you're not just giving a speech. Mm-hmm. Preaching is something different. Mm-hmm. So it's a visual joke. So if, if you're listening to the podcast, this is going to work. Um, <laughs> and this, this would be really funny to, to white people. But the joke is um, I'm afraid of black people mm-hmm. thinking I'm racist. Drinking a cup, black cup of coffee? No, it's – so you don't even – I love that you didn't catch this. Because my catch white it. friends think it's hilarious. Oh. Because just that, that pause – uh-huh. I'm afraid of black people. The sentence is, I'm afraid of black people thinking I'm racist. Oh. But it's that I'm going to do something unintentionally, like pause in the middle of that uh, sentence and yeah. take a drink. And it's going to be, you know, and then everybody's upset. Now, all of a sudden, I'm getting blown up on Instagram and all of that. So there is this fear. And here, let me give you another one. Um, people of color, colored people. One of those is okay, and one of those isn't, and it is really close to each other. It is. There is this fear a lot, for a lot of white people that just accidentally, I'm, I'm going to say something, yeah. Oh, and yeah. it's I'm going to get blown up. So I, there's, I think white people oftentimes feel like they're walking on eggshells. I don't like the, that there, there's this fear of saying something wrong. I think there's an ignorance a willful ignorance. Who has not been taught history? Who did not go through school and not see that sign? Colored people, white people on the fountain. Mm-hmm. Okay? So if you're saying, I don't know which one to say. Colored people, not uh, people of color, I don't know which one. No, you're willfully ignorant. No, it's, I think it's a slip. We're afraid of the slip of the tongue. It just comes out wrong. Or you, like I did with that little bit there, the, the take a drink. <laughs> And it just no, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. That's not, and then it's then it's out of your control. Yeah, uh, I I think I mean, I've, sometimes I do think it's willful ignorance, and then I think sometimes it's just never had the opportunity to learn. I I, I think it's a mix like of both. Our mutual friend said, "Hey, I want to care about issues that matter to Black people. I just don't have to. I don't have to." But that conversation was them caring. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. That was, that was a conversation. That honestly was it was. Hey, I got. I'm just telling the truth, right, about yeah. my experience. Uh, he didn't even know how to. Right, exactly. And so I think that on, on one end, you have people, man, so right now, yeah, if you're white, there's a lot of pressure because you're, you're, you're told yes. to say something, mm-hmm. but you're also told don't say the wrong thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I agree there. You see I, what I'm saying? I see, I see. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what, so what do we do? And I mean, that's all the, conversa- all the conversations I'm having with people are like, yo, so what do I do? I'm white, what do I do? So I'm going to come to you, my black friend, one of my black friends, and I'm asking you, not only as a black friend, but also as a black pastor, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And so I've had to put videos out, in some ways defending and trying to protect white folks from shame and guilt and just getting slammed via social media because I think on one hand, there's this pressure from culture that says, you know, silent science is um, compliance. Is that what it is? is well, that what it was it? Silence? Silence is... is uh, 
it's, agreement essentially. Yeah. It's another C word. I can't think of what it is. Um, and to me, it's like wait, wait a minute, because like your the reality, silence is violent. Yeah, silence is violent, or something like that. Yeah. But it's just it's it's un, it's just, it's, un, it's this unrealistic expectation that we put on the shoulders of people, because of what we fail to realize, especially again here in Iowa, I think LA is different, mm-hmm. right? Why folks in LA are different than they are yeah. here in, in Iowa, but people here, man, like if you're from Corning, Iowa. I mean, like, what do you and you and you and you let's say you look at yeah, you're just trying to you're trying to figure out what in the world is how yeah. do I even navigate through this? Yep. Uh, <laughs> you, you're just trying to learn about what's going on in the first place. I see. Yeah. I see. So you definitely don't even know what to say, you know. So because you don't get on Facebook and say something or on Twitter and say something, mm-hmm. now culture saying, well, you agree with it. Yeah, that's indifference. You're yeah. part of the problem, <laughs> and it's it, it's frustrating for me because I know a lot of white people who just don't know what to do. Yes, <laughs> they want to do something, My but they just church. don't know what to do, right? And so, yeah. um, I think it's you know, I think yeah, there's certainly some people who just who are just blind, who are just willfully blind to what's going on. They and they're they're care. getting the spotlight, which is probably where my comment came from before I came here today, looking at this website and. <laughs> Rather not say it, but it, it just it lists all it just it's all the hot topic events that are going on, and it shows nothing but Karens. Karen, Karen shows nothing but the worst of white people just being yeah. ignorant. Mm-hmm. And I gotta be so I gotta slow down, rebuke myself a bit, be careful not to mass project that. <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, so yeah, yeah, and it's. So I agree it, with you guys. Yeah, it, there is that pressure, but um, <coughs> it's. I, I've just decided. I think we got to wade into the waters and and start the conversations because this is this is a great place to do it yeah. in Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah. We don't have like a real long. Um, we don't have a Baltimore track record. We don't have you know Minneapolis years and years of police abuse. It's just different here. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a little bit easier. There's less to undo. Uh, less to unscrew up before we start moving forward. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing, too, and I, I had this conversation because I appreciated one of my friend's churches last night, and uh, it's a white church in Urbandale, and he was like, hey, I need you to come in. I need you to kind of open this up because I need you to kind of be the one to kind of allow, that, that, gives, that allows me to catapult kind of this, this discussion within, within our church. Mm-hmm. And I want you to kind of start this <clears> off, <throat> right? But I think from a Christian perspective, one of the things that's frustrating for me is the cowardice that takes place in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that's immediately what came to my mind. I respect the man for saying that he needs help. Yeah. But it's hard not to hear that he well, is not willing or is not educated. I mean, what, what was that? I think, you know, I think for him, I think him, I appreciated his approach to it. Because, well, first, it's better than no approach and not <laughs> right. talking about it at all. Mm-hmm. Right. But I appreciate his approach because I think we have a relationship, and I've I've spoken to a church before, so there was that relationship with that church, and they had served with us at a um, one of the outreach gotcha. events that we had gotcha. done, all that kind of stuff. So it was a different dynamic there relationally. But you know, when you talk about okay, can we talk about white evangelicalism in America? Uh, there is this. There's a lot of silence on this, and this is the issue I have to evang- with the evangelical church uh-huh. is I mean, we'll we'll push abortion all day long. They'll push abortions wrong. They'll stand on the streets holding signs. You know, life starts uh, at conception. Uh, Praise God for all that. Okay. But when it comes to a black man being killed, whether we consider it racist or not, it's a form of injustice Mm -hmm. 
was completely silent. Mm-hmm. So we cherry pick. We cherry pick justice issues and within the evangelical church. But then you have churches like Alpha Street Baptist Church, which is a black church in Virginia. Every week, they're trying to get their people focused on not hating a white man. And, you know, we got to, you know, this is our history, but we got to continue to pursue because God is a God of exodus and God frees people and he liberates his people and he, he cares for the oppressed. And churches filled with all these black folks who are coming from a context of oppression. Right. Are talking about this is this familiar language within that church. And it takes someone to die for the church or maybe think about talking about it. Mm-hmm. Not just someone, multiple people. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Multiple people. At this point, we have a whole list of people. You get to fill a whole T-shirt past, up with names. Just the past two years. Right. You know, yeah. and it's, it's frustrating for me because it's like the cowards that 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 are in the pulpit today are driving me nuts. Yes. And a lot of these cowards are at big churches. Uh-huh. Let me talk about that for a minute. <clears throat> so there is um pastors live in fe- well, I shouldn't say that. A lot of pastors live in fear. Um I'm I get the feeling that you don't. I don't, but there is this this fear that is we we tend to take our people very personally. Mm-hmm. You should. You're you're their pastor, mm-hmm. you're, you're their shepherd, you love them. When they hurt and when the hurt comes from us we wear that even more. Mm-hmm. Like the worst thing that ever happens um, is you get this letter out of the blue that says, I'm leaving the church because X, Y, Z made me so angry yeah. six months ago yeah. and you didn't know about it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you yeah. had those. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, so, you, so you, there's a bit of that um, hesitancy to start in the pulpit for the white evangelical community because unlike um, other issues, this one for... Some people is complicated and takes time to understand, and a lot of a lot of the white parishioners feel like we're making this into teams, and it turns out I'm on the bad team because uh-huh. I'm white. So now I got to have my pastor up there telling me that I'm a racist, mm-hmm. and I've I've uh-huh. never done anything. Or now you know I, here's what I hear a lot is I my, my grandparents didn't even live here during the time of slavery I didn't do it right yeah, yeah, right right or it's been so long ago like right. my great 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 grandparents owned slaves but it wasn't me so it's, why am I the slave owner why am I the bad guy now right. and um, I think the pastors have the right mindset but their heart's not in it because they're afraid they're going to stand up there and start preaching this of course. Mm. and people will be like. No, pastor, you're 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 on their team now. Yeah, and that's but that is not the fundamental issue there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Preach it. Their team. Mm-hmm. Why why are we why why is that a, why is that vernacular that we use within the church? When you read Ephesians chapter four, we're called to unity, mm-hmm. one baptism, one faith, one Lord. Right, like this whole idea of the the Catholic universal church. Is, is missed in the West. Like, it's completely missed. Now it becomes every individual church, mm-hmm. right? And not only that, but now we're competing against each other to figure out who can be the bigger and the biggest and the baddest and have the biggest budget. And the and the the thing I have is when it, the, the church has lacked, for the most part, I'm not saying the white church, I'm saying the church in general, has lacked developing a theological framework for what justice means. Justice. Because, see, the issue isn't, just racial injustice. Yeah. The issue is injustice in general mm-hmm. because injustice takes many different forms, mm-hmm. right? Injustice is when a man hits his wife. 
That's mm-hmm. injustice. Injustice is when a little girl is kidnapped from her family and thrown into a sex trafficking ring for someone's economic gain. That's injustice, mm-hmm. right? And so I think what's happened is in the West, in our privileged communities where we have $800,000, $1 million budgets, mm-hmm. and the biggest worry we have is how are we, what are we going to add to the building this year? What, what, yeah, what, yeah, what color are we going to paint the wall? Mm-hmm. Right. And the greatest persecution we experience is, oh, no, we got a bad review on our Facebook page. <laughs> Someone gave us a four star, not a five. Right. Um, we don't understand what injustice looks like because we're not living within that context. Yes. And so we don't need to talk about it because it's not our experience. Mm-hmm. But that's why the black church is talking about it, mm-hmm. because they're experiencing it. Mm-hmm. They're experiencing the police officer pulling them over, having to put their hands on the steering wheel, make sure they have their having their license, their car registration, and their insurance card all on the dashboard so they don't seem like a threat when they go to get it. Blondo mm-hmm. Castillo. That's, that's a part of their theology. That becomes, because, you, you know, I, I, I love John Wesley because his quadrilateral thing, he talks about the Bible is first and foremost, but he also talks about the experience. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what we experience um, is formed by, or a lot of our theology is formed by our experience, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and what we experience. And so people people who of who are oppressed will read Exodus differently than those who are privileged and never been oppressed. And you you don't you will fail to realize that God is concerned about those who are marginalized in the text. But if you're not one of the people who are who are put in the margins, you'll miss that. Yes. And Amen. I think that's a, that's the thing is we have to give an honest reading to Scripture. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand what's really there yeah. in order to be able to teach it well. Yeah, that I should pull my my sermon out. <laughs> you should be a pastor. <laughs> so my sermon this last Sunday um, was focused on uh, justice and injustice, mm. and that's that's where I kept driving it because that I think that's going to be um, the best avenue in for a lot of people who've never experienced racial um, have never had a, a interracial relationship have, have never Experience. known somebody mm-hmm. different but to say because it's it is easy for the white church to get behind any injustice um molly Tibbetts, uh that girl that yeah. went oh, missing yeah, that yeah. we were all we were all up on that yep. right everybody was yep. was engaged because this and it didn't matter the color of her skin it yep. was there was the injustice was she got snatched and killed right and this was a huge injustice from here um, so the experience. Yeah, just in general, it is um, we. The church can get behind injustice. It is um, the the downside is there's this projection, and it and it can come from outliers in in both communities mm-hmm. that the white person is the the one who is doing the injustice. Mm-hmm. So as mm-hmm. soon as I start talking about this, people in my church will hear this, right. and they will hear there is an injustice out there, and it's your fault. Yep. And it, that's not, it's that's really not. hard to preach that that's not what I'm saying when you've got the outliers on YouTube yelling it. Right. Absolutely. And I, and I, I think this is why it's important for the church to approach justice holistically mm-hmm. and not just cherry pick certain ju- injustices. Mm-hmm. Because you, you have a very narrow scope on what injustice is. If injustice is only racial issues, then you're going to ignore other forms of injustice and what we're called to do is do justice yes. right isaiah 117 learn to do good seek justice right it doesn't seek certain kinds of justice or seek the ones that are comfortable mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Or, or the only ones you're aware of is to seek justice. And so we have to develop for our churches and we have to disciple people into understanding a holistic understanding of justice and not just certain issues. Um, unfortunately, we live in a world where media manipulates and controls a lot of what we see and what we understand. And if media is our only form of information and education, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. I think that you just have to live life. And I think sometimes you have to step out the context in which you're living in to understand that. I think the gospel calls us to engage with other kinds of people. I'm not saying you got to move your house from, I'm not saying Daniel has to move from Waukee to go live in the Drake neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Right. But I would certainly say that people who live in Waukee or in Johnston and things like that should as believers be compelled by the gospel to reconcile Second Corinthians chapter five, mm-hmm. reconcile with other people who are not like them. Yes. Because we've all Are you we know, talking just financially? I'm just I'm talking about sociologically. I'm talking about relationally. I'm talking about just being in those environments just to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on in the world. Right? Because I think that the gospel is so much broader than just our context. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than just our context. But I think what we do is we reduce the gospel just to just our context, which is why it's easy for some of these white churches to ignore what's going on. Because within their context, there is no racial issue. But does that mean we don't talk about it when we don't deal with it? Because it's not part of our experience? No, because the gospel calls us to care for those types of things. You mourn with those who mourn. Mm-hmm. Right? Just because your community isn't mourning doesn't mean you don't have responsibility to mourn with the community next to you. Yes. Right. Absolutely. What that means is you have to get out of your non-mourning community and go to the community that is mourning and mourn with them because we're united. And that's what unity is. Not uniformity, but unity. Yeah. And it's hard for um, it's hard for I, I I sympathize with people a lot. It's hard to get off your butt and do anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and this is a hard one. This is a hard one because uh, what are we saying? We're, we're saying to the average person listening to this who is a uh, white Christian in whatever suburban context, okay, go find a place where you can connect with somebody of a different uh, experience, racially, socioeconomically, um, maybe they're from a different country. How do you do that? Like, where do you even go? What do you, what do you Google? Like, yeah, right, right, right. right. <laughs> Google, where do I meet nice black people? Like, yeah. I don't know how to do it. I mean, when a neighbor moves in next door, it's helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So that worked Hello. out. Yeah. No, absolutely. May, may, well, I mean, let's answer that. I mean, what, what, what do they do? Because they're not just going to go find a random black guy and say, hey, how do you feel? You know, I, I think it's kind of it's kind of how how you started the church. You intentionally, what he did, intentionally went to uh, different coffee shops, different restaurants, and ate at different places just to see different people, mm-hmm. see every part of the community. So I, I, what would I say to the average person listening? You go to this normal place that you go to every day or every week. Go to a different city. Go somewhere where yeah. maybe it's not the, where, where you wouldn't normally go. And give people a chance. Sit down. Mm-hmm. The server who comes to serve you. Hi, how are you? How are you doing today? Take a take a take, take a chance. Take a step out. Give people the chance to show you who they are. Well, this is where I think the church is the the church is the most important voice on this right now. Um, so what I've been preaching over and over again, my people are, are sick of me hearing it. Is <clears throat> if the church isn't the one with the voice, then who gets to speak on this? It's politicians, politicians, right? Or or media, CNN, and Fox News. That's the thing about it. You think about the, you think about justice because the church isn't talking about justice, right? Who who do Christians go to to develop a framework for justice? 
the only people who are always talking about justice, politicians, whether Republican or liberal. Mm-hmm. And but so what happens is, but it's self-serving. It is self-serving because yeah, the, the liberal will say, well, we need less. We need we need less. Uh, we need a person who's free in society to kind of function as they want to. The Republican will say, we need less government, right? But it's always about self, mm-hmm. right? It's never about the the betterment of a community um, or the glorification of God. And so, because the church isn't talking about it, the Christian goes to inevitably politics to define what justice is because they're consistently talking about some kind of justice. And what happens is the Christian loses their distinctive voice mm-hmm. because now you're saying the same things everyone else is saying. And that's what's happening on Facebook huh. right now. Every, I'm seeing believers Everybody's who, who do, they're quoting right yeah, now. Yeah, they're all saying the same stuff because <laughs> the believer hasn't developed a theological framework for what justice is. Yeah. Right. Because no one's talking about it. And, and we're no longer students of the Bible. We we, we, we skim through a couple of verses and make ourselves feel really good about reading the Bible for the week. <laughs> make ourselves um, scholars. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and so I think that that's the that's the fundamental issue is that um, we've outsourced our, our uh, definition of justice to politicians. Yeah. Who can trust a politician? Right. <laughs> you know, I right. mean, like their job is we to get elected. About that yesterday. And their job is to get reelected. Yeah. That's it. So as you're um, saying that, the two thoughts that came into my head is, first, uh, the theological framework of justice for a Christian ought to be remarkably different than the world. Because justice, oh, as far as the world is concerned, is you get what you deserve. Like the basic premise of Christianity is we don't get what we deserve. Instead, we get mercy. I mean that. Oh, you're going into it here. <laughs> yeah, we're going in. You're going in. But so, so the if we got what we deserved, it would be eternal death and damnation. Okay. But instead, Jesus takes upon Himself all of the injustice of of our sin, our rebellion against God, pays for it for us, and then now we receive what is unjust, mercy. That's what we're supposed to do for other people when we see injustice. We bear each other's burdens. We take that injustice upon ourselves. That is exactly counterintuitive to the world. The world of says, course. you did this, you get punished. I didn't do it. I don't get punished. So there you go. So here's here's the, the other thought that I had was, um, regardless of anybody's opinion on the organization, <laughs> my disclaimer here, okay. there would be no Black Lives Matter group wouldn't exist if the church had been doing their job oh, for the last 40 years. I um, agree. I agree. The fact that Martin Luther King Jr. had to write a letter from Birmingham prison lets us know that there was a Black Lives Matter coming at some point. (laughs) I mean, that's an amazing statement, seeing as we we still, even to this day, they view him as the pinnacle of civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And he not only served as a black man, but as a pastor. And if he couldn't get it done, if the church couldn't rally around that, and we knew this was coming, but it, it proves your statement. Yeah, if we had, if the church had been involved, if we, if the church was doing the the work of justice, of of regardless of skin color, just looking and saying, there's a group of people, and they live in this area, and, and we can call it urban or whatever we want to call it, and they experience life in an unjust way, and the church was about rectifying justice, about going to places of injustice, and and doing what the church does in ministry, we'd be in a way different place today. Well, I'm I'm kind of now not I'm kind of now not not agreeing with that because go. I have you seen that thing where this woman for those who are listening, 
she squints her eyes and she picks up her, she wakes up in the morning, she picks up her Bible, she says, oh, no, she looks at the news and says, all right, what part of Revelation are we in today? <laughs> uh-huh. Meaning, I know something bad is coming. The Bible tells me this ain't getting better. Mm-hmm. It's all going towards an eventual end. So whether the so so what are we saying? The church is just supposed to slow the progress of injustice because the church ain't gonna stop it. Okay, because we know it's coming. Okay, so again, to that average person listening to this podcast right now, you're challenging them to do more, but then to what end? I know. <laughs> so I'm not saying mm-hmm. do nothing, but you're if we're all Bible believers. We're all saying, this is expected, <laughs> and this ain't getting any better. Jesus says, so the you, you always have with you. So you attacking me right. on whether I, <clears throat> whether I act or not is not going to change what, what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I, I think how you interpret Matthew 16, when Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Like the offensive or defensive? Yeah. What you mean? Uh, yeah, I think that, that exactly. If you interpret that as the church having to play defense, then I think it, I think you will develop a not only a sociological, but also in some ways a theological framework that is that says, well, like what can we really do about this? Mm-hmm. Right? It's just going to keep getting worse. Like we just have to keep fighting against injustice and hopefully figure out a way to eradicate it. But if you look at, at the church playing offense, you realize that. Though things seem to get worse and, and are, our responsibility still remains the same in the sense that we have God has a, his delayed his coming because he still has the, a desire for those who to be saved. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so instead of trying to defend against what's going on in the world, you're seeing it as an opportunity to engage the world. Right. Knowing that it's still going down. Knowing that's still going down because at the end of the day, we play offense. We don't play defense. I like that. So I'm not going to try to shuffle with the world and try to keep up with the world and try like to stay that. in front of the world. I'm going to penetrate the world mm-hmm. because I'm on offense. I like that. And, and there is even a sense of defense that isn't um, – it's not a negative. It's it's the same reason you're going to go work out today. Don't mm-hmm. you know at some point in time you're just going to get old and die? <laughs> that's yeah. a good, good – Right, right, that's right, right, right. So just give up good, now, man. That's it's, a good – yeah, 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 I like that. So until we get to that point, I like – I, I, I always laugh. I, I like to lift weights so I don't punch Christians. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good stress reliever. Yeah. Um, but in, in reality, bone density, all that kind of stuff that's going to serve me when I'm 65, 75, I got to put in the work now. Right. So there is this this idea, too, of, yes, um, the poor you always have with you, you still feed the poor. You still feed the poor. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So just because you're not going to solve the problem doesn't mean the work isn't good. Right. I think that's important for people to understand. Yeah. Well, I, it's like this, too. Like, think about it. Here's I think we've we have this reductionic reductionic reductionistic Reduc- perspective <laughs> on the attributes of God. God is a just God. Okay. From his justice, he sends Jesus who dies an unjust death under an unjust society, who lives by an unjust a list of rules, who are governed by unjust leaders, so that we can be made just with God. Okay. But that justification isn't simply just a position. It should also be a practice. Explain that because you lost me. Shoot. So it's what we do. It's what we do. And I think what happens is we teach justification, justification, justification. Great. Teach justification. We, we stand right in front of God. Okay. Right? 
But that justification just can't be a position. It has to also be a practice. Okay. Meaning, God doesn't just simply justify you just to be justified. Mm-hmm. He justifies you so you can help uh, us right. justify right. other people. Right. right? And that's that reconciliation. That's that ministry, ministry of reconciliation that we've been called to exactly. in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Yeah. That I think a lot of us fail. So it's, when he says do justice, what he's saying is live out what you've been given. Mm-hmm. In the example that we've been given. Jesus. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is so much more than the external example, too. So um, this we always use goofy, silly church words like the imputation of mm-hmm. righteousness. So, But, but it's more than – I try and explain to people. It's, it's not like you put a justification cape on. Like <laughs> you're, you're you, but you have a Jesus cape on, right? Yeah. Or it's you, but you're wearing a, a white robe that nobody else can see. And, and, and Scripture will talk about robes of righteousness, all this. But it's – um, we become who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. From glory to glory. Yeah, we're baptized into his death. How mm-hmm. much more into his resurrection? Mm-hmm. So we are what he is, so we do what he does. I mean, yeah, if, if you're a turtle, you you swim around in ponds and you eat fish. Right. If you're a Christian, you do what Christians do. Right. What do Christians do? What Christ did. Right. Simple. It's not. It's not complicated. <laughs> right. Is it Hard. difficult to do? <laughs> yeah. Sure. But yeah. as as far as knowing what to do, it's really not difficult. Yeah. I gotta ask a question. Mm-hmm. I got to. You said as Christians we do what Christ did. Where is the record of Christ living in the suburb? Where is the record of Christ making sure that his kids had the access to the best education? Where is where 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 is the record of you trying to do better for your family, where, 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 because that, that seems to be what's demonized. That seems to be what's criticized the most. If I don't live in the worst area and have, be around those who have the worst experience, now I'm the bad guy. Well, you see, I think the issue with that is what do we define as worse and what does that look like? Because are we saying are we saying the the suburbs the world that we live in says what the inner city okay let's let's just take Des Moines okay, okay. the surrounding cities uh-huh. okay so if you live in inner Des Moines okay that now now you're you are blessed with having now the experience mm-hmm. okay you have a lot of other people around you yeah if you live let's just not use our city let's use <laughs> let's say you live in Grimes, Grimes or Urbandale mm-hmm. now. Are you not? Are you no longer living as Christ did? Am I no longer a Christian because I don't live where everybody else lived? It, but or, or should I go take a job making less money and go live in a neighborhood that looks worse because now I want to be a Christ follower? Disciples need to be made everywhere, and I think one of the issues, I think, when people say that, and I said this yesterday, I said. Uh, it bothers me when I hear white people say, oh, my gosh, the Drake neighborhood's so dangerous. I don't let, let's not go there. It's so dangerous. Okay. I'm like, Waukee is just as dangerous. It's just that the stuff that's happening it's in the streets different. is happening in the home. In the home. Mm-hmm. Right? And so. That's very true. People need. We know this. Mm-hmm. We know this. <laughs> people need Jesus in Waukee just as much as they need him in Des Moines. But, right? So, to me, the argument is weak to say that you're not getting the experience and like what would Jesus be? Jesus would have been everywhere, right? And on on top of this, but, uh, the, go ahead, go ahead. the the reality is of the calling. So, 
he calls some to be apostles, some to be right. teachers, some to be deacons, some to be pastors. Um, in our in our denomination, we talk a lot about vocation. So, how do you? Uh, how are you a Christian? You are a Christian in the terms and the context in which God has called you. So, I'm, I'm a Christian first and foremost as a, a husband. Mm-hmm. That's my first calling. Mm-hmm. My second calling is as a father. Mm-hmm. My third calling is as a pastor in this specific denomination. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really a matter of not um, not looking at it sociologically, but looking at it in terms of who you are. So if you don't if you don't have a calling, and I actually know a guy, my my mentor's son, um, as as suburban growing up as as you can be, did choose to actively moved. To uh, downtown Chicago area, because that's where he was called. Because he felt it felt very passionately called. He and his wife both felt like this is what we're supposed. To. So the, the inverse, like total white guy uh, suburban life, was like, no, this is me. And I and he goes and he attends a an African American church yep. and is living this. The, the 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 reason I raised the question the way I do is because I think that's the reason why you're getting calls mm-hmm. of. All these white people saying, what do I do? That's the reason why senior mm-hmm. church members are just not understanding because the message isn't clear from the pulpit, from the church as a whole, as to we're not demonizing you for wanting to do better. Mm-hmm. We're not de- That message isn't clear. Mm-hmm. What you guys are saying right now, I don't hear coming from, I don't see that on Facebook. I don't see that on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And you might say, oh, get better sources. I'm talking about the majority of people. Yeah. Where are they getting their information? Yeah. And so... I think that message isn't clear, and, and that's and so we can talk about righteousness and justice. And I think those who want to, like you said, we use these church words, right? Yeah. Those who think that way and only and are used to those terms might be able to understand it. But to break it down further and ask the question, just like I did, that's what people want to hear. That's yeah. what people want to know. Stop telling me I'm wrong for wanting to do better. But when you say it's about your calling, operate in that. That makes more sense to say Jesus was everywhere. Mm -hmm. That makes more sense. It makes me have value and and appreciate the fact that God brought me to and brought me through to where I am. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't have to feel bad about my experience now. So here, here I'm going to talk a little bit out of out of shop because out of school because it's not my experience. But I'm from my experience working in refugee camps in Kenya. I think that part of the misunderstanding for most people who've never taken this journey to understand injustice, racial inequity, all of this, their assumption, which is they're getting from Instagram, Facebook, is the way in which I rectify this injustice is take what I have and give to who has not. Okay. And now, so that's, there is this, people are greedy. People are greedy people and they're nervous. Like, oh, so how much of my, my 401k do I have to cash in? Because um, uh, Chauvin was kneeling on Floyd's neck. How much uh, is this going to cost me? Uh, that's their view of justice? or It is, it is what is um, the, the podcast I did with Duncan. That's, that's what he's, he always says. And at some point, we feel like now, now they're coming for our stuff. This is, this is the white person perspective. And here's where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out a little bit. And my assumption is that the, what we do in Kenya is because uh, we go to a place, there's 200,000 people who are hungry every day. There is not enough money. If everybody in this church just sold everything and lived in tents, we could feed everybody in this camp for a day, <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. two, <laughs> or, mm-hmm. like make their lives marginally better for a week. Mm-hmm. And it's, so there, there is no give to. But what we do is we go and we, 
um, sit with people so that they 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 feel known mm-hmm. and recognized. We share, and so th- this is what I think the um, biggest piece of the injustice that we can address is. I've my understanding is that there has not been a sense of the black community being heard, and so my the biggest thing I'm telling people is just listen, mm-hmm. just listen and hear and try and understand, because that's <clears throat> that's. That's where I think the protest, that's where I think the rioting, all this is coming from. We've been saying this mm-hmm. for how long? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying earlier, and it takes uh, the image of a, a white man's knee on a black man's neck for people to start going, oh. Right, right. They're saying something that's real. Right. And it's unfortunate because you think, you know, the situation with Emmett Till would be enough. You know, and all you got to do is Google Emmett Till. Mm-hmm. to see the destruction of that situation. Um, the death of Martin Luther King Jr., the death of Malcolm X, um, oh, the, um, the, Medgar Evers. Like, you I mean, you go on and on about some of these black activists who've died. What about the most recent one, Colin Kaepernick? Colin, uh, he was destroyed. That whole situation. And that one's even, that's tricky because now it's a, it's a tricky situation there. But, like, you know, I, it's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, I think listening is is valuable. Um you didn't even have to listen to him. You could just watch. Yeah, right. But they didn't want to do that. That situation. Oh, we want to talk about it. <laughs> listen, like that situation is. Can tricky. I say that he wasn't all that good? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right. Agree. Listen, Agreed. I, I, no, I agree. He lost it after after <laughs> they went, went to Super Bowl, whatever. Like, he just kind of but fell off. Is he not thrust forward in this conversation right now? I mean, if anybody listens to Sports Center, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the, the Roger Goodell and his right. whole statement couldn't, they say maybe for legal reasons, because he sued him and won. Um, uh, I mean, cap suit, yeah. the fellow run. Uh, but he couldn't say his name. He said, but he did say, we apologize. We're sorry that we haven't been listening. Listening to who? <laughs> Listening to who? We all know who you're talking about, right? But anyways, right. you obviously have a different opinion. No, 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 no. I don't. No, I don't have a different Same. opinion. All I'm saying is that situation, the dynamic in that situation is different because, you know, there, there, you're including, you know, the disrespecting the flag and the optic of kneeling during the during the um, national anthem is it's because you have people who are like Drew Brees came out. This first statement, oh. at least, right? Um, he came out and said, <laughs> I'm never going to be okay with someone kneeling during the, the national anthem. That's disrespecting the flag, he talked about. But you, what he talked about, though, was exactly where I think a lot of people are. I think yes. you have some people who just see it, have an opportunity to argue and want to argue. But for him, it was personal. Mm-hmm. Because he had family members, a grandfather and great-grandfather who served in the military. You say personal, I see selfish. I'm not justifying. I'm not saying I agree okay. with it. I'm just okay. saying this is what this is how it came out for me. Mm-hmm. I, I, when I listened to him, I was like, okay, he's not just making a general statement. I'm seeing that, okay, for him, he's not okay with it because his grandfather's fought in the military. I get that. But on the flip side of that, where they were, there were some black men fighting with them as well. Mm-hmm. Right along with them. Right? Right along with them that would probably kneel mm-hmm. or whose grandsons would kneel or are kneeling, Right? Um, and so it's, it's a different dynamic now because you're, now it's like who's right and who's wrong is what mm-hmm. it comes down to, unfortunately. Um, listen, I, what, what Kaepernick was doing, oh, I agree with. Because he, he's, he said himself what was he multiple doing? times. He's not, he's not disrespecting the flag. Right. He's not disrespecting the military. 
He's saying, I'm protesting against the injustice that's taking place in this world. And if we historically look at something like the National Anthem or even the Star Spangled Banner. Yep. Let's get some historical context here. Mm-hmm. Right. If I would have known this as a kid, I, I was having this conversation with Sarah. Oh, how the, if the, Titus the second got, verse of it? Yeah. How it was written. If Titus it. decided to, you know, go to school, my son, he's four, he's going to be four in July. If he was going to school and decided not to put his hand on his heart and he got in trouble for it, would we punish him? Heck no. No, we wouldn't. Mm-hmm. No. We really wouldn't. And part of the principles that we're going to teach him is, well, we love the kingdom more than we love our nation. Yes. Amen. First and foremost, mm-hmm. right? But let's then this way. Let's be completely honest about the history of, of our country. Can we just have an honest? This country was not founded on Christian principles. Correct. The founding fathers were not Christian men. They were deists who believed that a God created something, then left it to exist on its own. And they were also men who pick and chose what they wanted in Scripture. They literally ripped out parts of the Bible mm-hmm. to to uh, push forward what they agreed with. Yeah, justifying slavery. Mm-hmm. Literally studying that right. Mm-hmm. Right, so let's let's be completely honest about the the, the the history of our country, and what we're the ideology and the theology that we're founded on. It, you know, it's like when you go from there. I can get the. I'm not gonna. I would. I would kneel for the flag too, the national anthem. And it's again, it's not disrespecting those who fought. I appreciate those who fought mm-hmm. in the military. I have friends in the military that I appreciate and always will. But the, there's a bigger point than just the military here. Right. We're talking about a long line of history that's affected the lives of people of color in this country, particularly black people. So I, I think what the, the cap issue um, is fascinating to me because on the one hand, completely unjustly railroaded right out of the NFL. Mm-hmm. And he won his lawsuit for a reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't tell me. Everybody do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, 30, what is it, 32 teams? Yeah. Nobody needed a backup? Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. There's, there's people starting who are not as good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is it is one of the most resource-poor positions in all of sports. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, come on, there's that. But had that not happened we wouldn't be in this really interesting spot right now where I felt like what Goodell was saying was actually heartfelt. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's a really good actor. I don't know. You didn't, you didn't think so? Oh, my gosh. Okay, did it not happen a day or two after? Did you see the video that came out before? <laughs> um, it was, if you didn't, I forgive you. Okay, okay. I don't think I did. Okay. <laughs> If you didn't, I forgive you. Okay. okay. <laughs> it was, I think, about probably 10 or 12 high-profile NFL players saying— Oh, yeah, in the squares. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I saw that. Chief of which was Patrick Mahomes, your Super Bowl MVP. Mm-hmm. If he's coming out saying it, oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they said—and they, they, they said, listen— we, I mean, you got stars in the NFL coming out saying, we want to hear the NFL say this. We were wrong for not listening to social justice. We were wrong. We were wrong. Mm-hmm. They, they came out with a video saying, we, we, NFL, say this. Two days later. Mm-hmm. By the pressure. Two days later, what happens? He says it. And he almost word for word says what they said. He got pressured into doing sure. this. But you, don't, you didn't see I don't think not a single bit so of that was disingenu- all why? disingenuous. I, I know why. Because who is he run by? He's paid by the owners, right? Mm-hmm. This might be a sports center thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm in the sports center, right? Stephen A. He, he's, he's paid by the owners, right? Why have we not heard from them? Why is he their spokesperson? Where's Jerry Jones? 
Oh, Jerry Jones is the last one. I mean, he's why? Because it don't freaking matter to him, right? I, I it don't matter to none of them. So to say, put Roger Goodell there as a scapegoat, that cannot be honest. He almost word for word read what the what, what, what the ten other people said before. With the you know the video mm-hmm. I'm saying, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Almost commercial. word for word said with it. He just got pressured into doing something. So here's the question: Do you, do you feel as though the so there has been, I think, a, a lot of reaction from the white community, like NFL aside. Uh-huh. Um, do you feel like th- that is a genuine, or do you feel like it is? Oh, we have to say this to me. <laughs> I saw the thing. It said, "Be careful, white people." Like you said, they don't know what to say. Yeah, they you, you, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right? He said. They, they, uh, he said. Be careful, white people posting something in in favor of social justice because that looks a lot like oh I got black friends too. Right. <laughs> so I, it's as hard as it, as it is for them to figure out what to say. It's just as hard to interpret if that's genuine or not. Okay. But is that my my, my responsibility to do in the first place? I don't know. I would just I would just, like what is you what do you suspect? What do you think? <sighs> it's hard. It, it's it's very hard because I think now you're forced to care. But if you really wanted to, taking it back to the spiritual side, if you really wanted to do justice, I would. You, I would have seen something in your life. You're again. Might say get better sources, Daniel. But this is where people choose to tell their story on Facebook, on mm-hmm. Instagram. This is where they choose to tell their story. I see nothing. I see nothing about anything other than your closed circle until now. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to interpret that as genuine. But then I have to. Take a step back. Yep. Like I said, have some grace. Maybe they just didn't know. Maybe this is their first opportunity. I give you credit for caring, but golly, it hurts so bad because I know how much things could have changed if you just would have cared before. Mm. If you just would have listened before. And now you come out back to Roger Goodell with this flimsy video. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, we should have listened yeah, when you got 10 high-profile guys saying, do it. Yeah. Say something. So I have a very different perspective and experience with this because obviously uh, white guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But see, but I value your experience because you spent how many years in St. Louis around a bunch of black folk? Mm-hmm. And you said Milwaukee, Milwaukee around a bunch of black folk? Mm-hmm. So at least it's somewhat informed. But I, I'm seeing from, like, is this a real informal Whole of people from living faith. Okay. Real change of heart. Yeah, for sure. And it's and it's not change of heart like, you know, I've, I've got a couple of elders who, it's, it's not like, well, they were racist before and now they're not. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. It is. Okay. They're, they're, okay. Their movement is, oh man, we, we do, like, for some reason, the, that video of, of Floyd's death and um, what has been following has caused them to, to, their hearts move. It's weird. I've not seen it before in, in 10 years here. I mean, cause Philando Castile, like we have some video and we all know that that is wrong and unjust, but there was, there's just something different about this one. And I, and I haven't been able to put my finger on it. And I haven't either. When I was talking to your brother, like he was saying, this, this is different. And he's been in this for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So this one's different. I wonder why that is. I mean, I, I, and I really, I don't like that it is, but doesn't change the fact that it is. I have, I have a couple of theories. I'll, I'll get to them in a second why I think this one's different. But but truly, I'm, I'm seeing the, the people that I, in my circles, and talk to um, who are saying, yeah, you know, I thought I was listening, 
and I wasn't, mm-hmm. or I, I thought I understood and I don't. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're starting to change. And this is why I honestly think there are even owners in the NFL who are, and Jerry Jones is not one of them, I don't think, <laughs> but there are owners who are different now. This is a, I think this one's having a bigger effect on the community. Yeah. I, I saw the uh, I can't remember what the, team, uh, the Ravens owner come out and said something I thought was genuine. He said, "Wow, I I realized something." He said, "A lot of these these guys are hurting." Mm-hmm. I think to use that kind of language lets me know, know he's. Owner came out and said yeah, that. the Ravens owner said that. He he's he's talked with these guys, right? To say they're hurting, you know, they're not say they're to say they're hurting to me like that's a word that you use when you've ex- seen it or you've experienced that's it. That's different. You, than we stand with the community. Yeah, it's, it's, it's no disingenuous term. I, I agree. I think there's a, you know, there's Blackout Tuesday. Everyone posts a little black thing on their picture on their social media. And immediately after, people go back to their lives, right? Most of those people. But I do think there are uh, there are people out there, and some of which, are, like you said, I know personally, who are genuinely wanting to change how they function and how they think. Yeah. Um, and there's Christians and non-Christians on both sides that I see that that are, that are white. Um, and so do I think, do I think why do most people put out, you know, post black, you know, black, um, blackout Tuesday, cultural pressure, <laughs> right? Silence is indifference. Um, they don't really care, but they just don't want to be demonized and vilified for not saying something. They're so scared. they put, put a little post up real quick and bounce. Mm-hmm. But I have a conversation with Russ, whom I would go work out with. And he's like, well, honestly, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. And he and his wife are both texting me saying, too. yeah, we want to, we, we want to, we want to figure out ways to, to help inform our son, mm-hmm. right? That's me. When you when it starts, That's when you trying to trigger, yeah, you want the trigger down effect to your children. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay. And I've had a lot of those conversations with people. Well, we we, we have a neighbor who, who they, they they went home and um, they were talking to their kids about what was going on, mm-hmm. and their kids. And I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Like mm-hmm. they're you're going home saying, "Guys, this is happening." Yep. Not only it's happening, it's close to us by opportunity. Mm-hmm. Maybe they care a bit more. Whatever, mm-hmm. but the, you know what their kids' immediate response was? Oh no, we're gonna make sure that nobody treats you know my kids yep. any differently. Yeah, you know, and and we had the discussion. Was that <laughs> do I should I should I? It's kind of tying into what we're saying. Uh, am I the judge? How do we tell if it's genuine or not? Yeah. Yeah. Because I can say, oh look at them exercising their white privilege, mm-hmm. saying now they're gonna protect my kids. Mm-hmm. Or can I say, no, they're genuinely trying to be good people. Mm -hmm. They're genuinely trying to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. Mm -hmm. And so it's not right for me to have anything other to say than I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think this this time is different. Um, Here's what I think a lot of people, and and that Ravens, I I actually did see that. I think what the owner was um, trying to communicate was a sudden recognition that that we don't really have in the white community, and this is to our detriment. Um, if there is, is something, a terrible injustice that happens to, uh, with the police, with some white person, mm-hmm. we don't really internalize or take that as personal if, if we don't have a connection. Okay. So um, okay. let's, okay. Flip, right. let's, yes. let's flip the white, the, the Floyd thing around. Okay. It, it's a black cop knee on a white guy's neck. Mm-hmm. He dies, and we go... But that was not cool. Yeah. But I don't take it personally. I'm not going to go protest. Wow. I, I haven't even flipped it to yeah. think like that. So yeah. Molly Tibbetts was 
one of ours in Iowa. Right. So Iowa was upset, and it made national news, but, but we weren't like nationally upset. Right. I think the the uh, black community is uh, better off in that there is this real sense of camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like <laughs> with our with our house that's for sale, uh-huh. um, Alicia sitting outside and a, a family comes to check out the house and they're black and she's uh, she's like Paul's Daniel. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's a thing. That really is a thing. Like, bro, we here. Yeah, we in there. Yeah, that's the thing. It really is. I mean, I really like you know. For me, you know, like when I see a black person, even in Des Moines, there's a little nod to you, like the yes. brother nod. Yes. It's like, hey, I see you. Yeah. Right, because it's like there's not a lot of us out here. I see you. And historically, it's always been like that. Mm-hmm. We've always been the minority. We've always had to look out for each other. And I think we've been taught that sociologically, right? Like, you, you see it. another black person, you, you acknowledge, you say, what's up? You know, like, you know, you kind of you kind of have to protect your people type mentality. Um, so much so that even when someone from L.A. sees a man die in Minneapolis, never yeah. having been to Minneapolis, they see yeah, a black man dying, that's personal for them. Yes, because that could have been me, is what you hear a lot of people say. Yeah. That could have been me. That could have been my uncle. But you guys don't think My like community that. does not, the white people do not understand. And there's, there's just not the history to say that to oh. be true. Yeah, let's, why? Because there's no history. There's no history to say. And there's, so there is this distinctive thing that is uh, people of color. But then white people, like our our heritage is uh, German or Irish <laughs> or well, French. Could be or, <laughs> Yeah. We're a smorgasbord sport of things. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but we say white people. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and we think of ourselves as like, I'm not really connected to any of these other white people. Uh, you know, it's not really a thing. And that's, and, but that's why. I'm saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's, there is the, the heritage of descendants of slavery is even different than African immigrants, right. African refugees. Right. So th- those are, and again, if, if we're walking down the street, I can actually look and tell if this is an a African immigrant refugee versus somebody who is a descendant of slavery, right. American black person. To those other I can see it. I can see it in their eyes. I can see it. There's. It's just different. You can see it. Yeah, it's different. But on, a, but because I've been there so much. But on average, a white guy walking on the street sees a black person. They see a black that's person. a black person. Right. Yeah, it's a different. So we're learning that just how personally this really hits because it doesn't in our community, mm-hmm. and um, it, like, like that was that was Kaepernick. You know, it's it's easy to be like, yeah, he's, he was okay. He wasn't like a great quarterback, and yeah, so they ran him out, whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's different, mm-hmm. yeah. and I and I think this time is different too because I think we're always nervous that. Um, that they whatever a, a white police officer does, like the the Castile case is perfect, um, Philando Castile, because you can just watching that video, you can see that that cop is torqued up, right? Adrenaline just pumping. He is scared. Yeah, he shouldn't be, right? right. And that was garbage, and it, it's a bad shoot. We're all on the same page, but like I I can at least be like, man, he was really worked up, a lot of adrenaline. He panicked, and and making that decision is a tenth of a second to mm-hmm. squeeze that trigger. Mm-hmm. Where this one was nine minutes. Eight, yeah, yeah. And there is no split second. He's not amped up. He's not scared. No He adrenaline. also says, I can't breathe multiple times. Yeah. Why isn't this guy listening? You know, right. like, why isn't he? So so you got that. The, the nature of this and the, the media is so, the, the actual video footage of it is so powerful. Also... I feel like there was a, a real sense of we're all in this now. Um, 
and that's coming out of the the COVID nineteen uh, house arrest of everybody, right. you know. So the, the country was in together. Like yep. we were all in this thing together. We're all suffering through something together already. So like our, I think the mindset of a lot of people was set to be together with other people. Yep. You know, we're all yep. out of work. I, I agree. All I haven't thought about that. The perfect storm, huh? Perfect storm. I think so too. I think I think that's very true. Because I, I asked this question. I wonder if we hadn't gone through COVID and this happened, would this take have taken national news? Would you have seen other countries participating in these protests? In the, in the sizes that they have, mm-hmm. you know, but I do think that COVID people being stuck in and seeing this man killed unjustly was an excuse to say, let's rally together. Yeah. Like, forget COVID. Uh, let's come together because we've been put inside and isolated for so long. We're, we wanted to bust out the seams at this point. Let's really show up. Yeah. And more people were willing to participate in that. Yeah. And now we're because so much. Of, now we're so much together that the NBA's having discussions saying we don't want to stop being right. together. They're having a discussion saying, should we come back and play? Because if we come back and play, that takes away from this perfect storm. I think it's true. And it was, you know, it's really hard to rally as Americans together over anything. Now you get this pandemic and you're like, we have something to rally against, but it's so invisible. I mean, it's literally invisible. (laughs) Right. And... uh, (laughs) And then we get a visual and it's like it was almost like this transference Uh, for a lot of people of I want to rally against something. I'm already in that mode of working together towards something. And I I can just transfer that right over. The energy goes right to racial injustice. Yep. So that way it's like a weird godsend. Yeah. It it helps me kind of understand because I've I've had a lot of questions over. Why this? What was it about this particular time that made, in particular, the black community just go overboard? What made? But I, it kind of helps me understand a little mm-hmm. bit more now, you know, not just that, the black community, but everybody else. And we were still off the fumes of Ahmad Osbury. Like, we're still, we're, Arbery, we're still frustrated about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was still some, that was still new mm-hmm. for us. And a lot of people were still fuming from that situation. And then not long after the situation happens. Do you think, I I already thought that was beginning to lose steam. It was. Well, I think it was. I think there was just just enough there. Just enough left. To to kind of catapult a little bit. Plus COVID, I think it was just, it was new enough in people's mind. There hadn't been this long gap of time for people to forget about what had happened in Georgia. There were still people talking about it. You inevitably were still reading about it in some areas, especially as, you know, you go to Shade Room and things like that. You're still kind of hearing about that case. And so it's still fresh in your mind in that sense. And so that carried over. I can tell you, like me and Alicia had a conversation this morning, and I'm trying not to use the word fear, not to let that come in. But I read two guys in L.A. 50 miles apart. Yeah, Palmdale and Victorville. Okay, and the first first they said is suicide. First of all, Alicia's worked with the police enough to know Anybody who could commit suicide is not going to do it in the wide open, mm-hmm. okay? They're either going to call somebody and say, look, this is about to happen. I'm done. Or they're mm-hmm. going to write a note. When you're okay? really in that place, yeah. And they say, I'm, they're not going to do it in the open. And so it's, I'm trying not to let that set in. But here we are. Well, I'm trying to tie this in. Ahmaud Arbery was losing steam. But then, had, like I said, had just enough. Then now George Floyd. And now you got these two guys in L.A., okay? Talk about experience. Does it hit home? Oh, for, it, it, well, I'm from there. That's where I grew up. It hits home. Yeah. And they're hanged. Somebody's trying to say something. Mm -hmm. Somebody's trying to make a point. 
and it makes me a little scared, for, fearful for my son. You know, I can I can defend myself, but right. it really does do that. You know, it's, he, he mm-hmm. rides around the block, and who knows? It could be somebody else trying to make a statement. Mm-hmm. Somebody trying to say, "Nah, this is our town." Right. I mean. The word the website I was looking at earlier was World Star Hip Hop, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. A lot of black people go there. A lot of people. This I love that okay. website. <laughs> <laughs> and you see on there, World Star. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see pe- people looking and saying, "Hey, uh, 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 they, they, like I was watching these two guys saying, no, you guys ain't gonna post the. Uh, you're not gonna put these protest signs in our neighborhood. We're not gonna stand for that. We're that's their mm-hmm. words. We're not gonna stand for that. And so we've moved past." Uh, what am I trying to say? Um, covert mm-hmm. displays mm-hmm. of racism. Yeah, it's coming out. To let me, what really gets your attention? Hang you. Mm-hmm. Now that be a little premature, Daniel Reichel. We should wait for the facts to come out. We should, we should. But the fear that it incites is not premature. And the fact, I mean, the, the thing too, you're talking about Palmdale and Victorville, those are not far from each other. No, they're like 50 so, miles apart. Yeah, oh, so yeah, Victorville? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, where yeah. you grew up. Yeah. So that's very, that's, that's you know, the coincidence. That's, that's not even 50 of a, miles. Yeah, not even 50 miles. We're talking mm-hmm. about maybe like <clears throat> 30 minutes between each other, mm-hmm. really. And so it's like um, the closeness in a proximity. And the timing of what's going on in our country mm-hmm. and the the awkwardness of two black dudes hanging themselves publicly. You know, it's like, come on, let's be completely honest about it. But I do like there is this sense of like I was thinking about last night. I was coming from Ankeny last night. And just now I'm thinking about being pulled over, possibly. Now I'm thinking about really going to speed limit, making sure that I'm, you know, like placing my, you know, just those kinds of things. Because I'm like, I don't. I don't know where some people are at right now. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's it's hard to navigate through that because you just, you don't know when you walk outside. There's gonna be somebody who's angry, who's who's been you know secretly part of the KKK who just hates you, mm-hmm. right? Because of what's happening. You know, I'm I'm you know, and it's 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 a weird season for me right it, now. I think. And it, you talk about your little boy, like DJ's full books. So my son's mixed. Really? DJ's a black little boy. He has black hair. My son has mi- both my boys have mixed hair, right? But with DJ's situation is different because I think like with Daniel, like DJ's a black boy. There's no mistaking DJ for being a black boy. <laughs> like he's he's yeah. black. You know what I mean? And that it's an interesting dynamic to think about it that. Is, man. Because even for me, it's like you know that that you know people you're call light skin le- privilege. You're a little less threatening walking down the street with Sarah. Yes. And, and your kids. Yes, exactly, okay? exactly. As opposed to me and Alicia coming right. by. Where are they going? Where right, they, you're, you're the you're from? black family. They they are the yeah. epitome of black love. I I don't can't say black love with my wife because she's Mexican and white. Mm-hmm. But but you wouldn't know she's Mexican. But you wouldn't know she's Mexican <laughs> until she starts speaking Spanish. <laughs> but you know it is a different dynamic for him. You know having a black family. Yeah. You know having a black wife and black children. Um, but anyways. Yeah. 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 I got to tell Cam the story. So um, one day we're all sitting outside you know families are hanging out and my daughter says dad can i talk to you oh <laughs> and i was like sure what's up and she kind of wanted to be separate and mm-hmm. she goes dj said he like likes me <laughs> like likes me and i was like okay and she goes and i i like like him and like i don't know is it okay if we date <laughs> <laughs> and i went oh god no <laughs> the day has come 
No, my, my first thought is, have I have I raised a tiny little racist in my oh, house? Oh, like, she's oh going, is that your first It was thought? my first thought, because she no. looked at me like, is it okay to date him? And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. My, oh, my heart is like, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that's what oh, first thought. Yeah, I was like, how do I have a tiny little Klansman in my house? <laughs> right? And, and I go, well, what do you mean? She goes, well, some dads don't like their daughters dating. And oh, says, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh, thank God. Yeah. I'm so happy. <laughs> so I was much more open yeah. to them dating after that was the explanation. I was like, Whatever oh. dating means at 10, which means when they come outside, you play. Yeah, you hang out yeah. together. That's yeah. what I asked. I go, so like, do you want to hold his hand? He goes, no. That's what that means. Yeah, no. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I go, literally, I was like, okay, so first, you're not dating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys have been dating. In that case, you guys have been dating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's <laughs> funny. The way she asked that, yeah. Oh, terrified me for just a second. Well, now your old church knows. <laughs> yeah, right. The TV has crashed. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Yeah, I don't care. I'm, my kids are. That's part of the deal when you're pastors. Your kids are fair game for everybody. They're public figures as well. It's true. We know church yeah. kids. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Well, you sure. do know. Pastors kids. That's right. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys coming in. That's uh, about two hours worth. Yeah. Wow, that's it's crazy. They did go by fast. Wow. Yeah, there you go. Cool. All right, thanks, guys. Yeah, All thanks. Right, and there you go. That was an awesome conversation. Uh, really appreciate those guys coming in. And like I said, we just got to keep having these conversations. Um, and from our perspective, uh, I shouldn't say our, I don't know who else is listening to this. From my perspective and my people's perspective, we have to continue to find ways to start by listening and appreciating and understanding people who experience the world differently than we do. Because it's a real thing and uh, we really have to figure that out. So start listening. Uh, find places, find opportunities to have conversations that are uncomfortable, difficult and recognize how starting with yourself is really honestly the the biggest thing we can be doing and uh, yeah let's let's start working towards justice like we were saying so there you go all right thanks for tuning in and listening until next time be good Rock out.